Today we're going to be uh, back in the book of Acts, and we're back in chapter 15 again, and uh, our goal today will be to complete chapter 15. And if you were with us last time, you might remember uh, that chapter 15 has to do with what is known as the Jerusalem Council. It was an opportunity, or it was uh, maybe a different word than opportunity, but it was, it was an event that was needed for the leaders of the church, Paul the Apostle, Barnabas, and others, to gather together to really answer that important question, a question that had arisen in the city of Syria, Antioch, or Syrian Antioch, as it's sometimes uh, referred to. Now, remember that context of things is that this gentleman, Paul, this, his sidekick, if you will, this guy by the name of Barnabas, that they had gone out on a missionary journey. It becomes known as the first missionary journey, uh, because it was a bunch after, um, but nonetheless, it was their first missionary journey they went out on. And while out there and ministering for this period of about three years, they eventually come back, uh, they land at their home church there in the city of Antioch, and soon enough, people arrived. Men of Judah, it says. And those men of Judah came, and, and they made this statement, that the Gentiles cannot be saved unless, I'm paraphrasing, but unless they first became Jews. And Paul the Apostle is like, that's not the gospel. No, no, it's not like that at all. And quite a dispute, it says, had arisen between each of these groups. Uh, the verse is, chapter 15, verse 1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, I, I imagine that's not the gospel you learned. And it was certainly not the gospel that Paul preached. Because that particular gospel, at the, at the best, is communicating that it's the work that Jesus did on the cross and circumcision, or and practicing the laws of Judaism. And Paul was saying, no, that's not what the gospel is at all. And so they debated it, they discussed it. There was no small dissension, as I think it says there in verse 2. And eventually it led to, well, then, you know, why don't we go down to Jerusalem with this? Why don't we talk to James, the apostle? Why don't we talk to Peter? Why don't we talk to some of the others that are there and let them weigh in on this particular thing, which is exactly what they did. And so that is what the, uh, the entire chapter 15 is about, is the, the, this council meeting and then the, um, the findings of the council. Uh, and so by way of review, we see in verses 4 through 5, that's where Paul and Barnabas present their case. In verses 7 through 11, you may remember, that's where Peter stands up and he shares his experience interacting with some Gentiles. Remember Cornelius the centurion and the way that God uh, confirmed the work that was going on in this Gentile man's life and, and all of those that were in his household there in their lives as well by pouring out his Holy Spirit on them, just like he had poured out his Holy Spirit on the Jewish people on the day of Pentecost. So Peter shares that experience then we see in verse 12, Paul and Barnabas say, and you know, not only that example, I can give you a whole bunch more, which they start to do. Verse 12 says, the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Saul as they related the signs and wonders that God did uh, through them among the Gentiles. So they share their experiences of God confirming the work that he was doing inside of the hearts of the lives of these Gentiles without becoming Jews. And then finally, we saw... And we've kind of stopped in the middle of this. Starting in verse 13, we saw James, the Apostle James. It seems as if the leader there of the Church of Jerusalem stand up 
and address the, or, the group there. And so starting in verse 13, it says, Now after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Congregation, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, Simeon, also known as Simon, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Now that's where we closed out our time together last time, and I, I made this statement uh, toward the end of our time together, but I think it's really important to take notice once more. Notice what James does. Peter shares a personal experience. Paul, Barnabas, they share their personal experiences, and James acknowledges those experiences, but what is of significance to James is not so much the experience, because our experiences, they can deceive us. What James does, though, is he points to the Word of God. He quotes from the book of Amos, it's the book of Amos chapter 9, and he demonstrates from the word of God that the word of God confirms what Peter said went on. The word of God confirms what Paul and Barnabas had said uh, had gone on. And again, the passage, it's Amos chapter 9, and he presents it with the purpose of showing how in that passage, how God speaks of both a remnant of Israel and all of the Gentiles, two separate groups of people. Not one group, uh, not two groups merging into one, that is the Gentiles becoming Jews in order that they might become Christians, but two separate groups, the remnant of Israel and the Gentiles, both of which, according to Amos, were getting right with God, who was in the process of making all things new. And so James then is essentially saying that God has done what he said that he was going to do. And so his conclusion, it's in verse 19, he says, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Paraphrasing that, I think we could say it this way, just leave them alone. They're turning to God and we shouldn't hinder them in any way from turning to God. That's James's uh, conclusion, if you will, and his recommendation. Now, what is interesting to know, and this is sort of the new material for today, notice in verse 20, even as he said, don't trouble them anymore, he says, but make sure they follow these instructions. And he says this in verse 20, but you should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual morality and from what has been strangled and from blood, that is eating food with blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. Now, at first glance, as I look at that, it, it seems contradictory. It seems like don't put any Jewish requirements on them except for these Jewish requirements. Make sure you put them on it. So it seems to be an apparent contradiction. But the apparent contradiction it is remedied by the fact that the advice that James is given here, it does not pertain to an issue of salvation at all. And so rather what James is doing, he's referring to it, he's dealing with the issue of fellowship. The issue of fellowship between Jewish Christians and those uh, that we would call, or I'm going to call, Gentile Christians. 
and the interactions that those people are going to have. So remember, go all the way back to verse 1. Unless they do these things, they cannot be saved. That's not what James is talking about. What James is talking about is the issue of fellowship between those that are going to make up the same congregation, those from Jewish descent, those from Gentile descent. And so thus, while obedience to these instructions is not a salvation issue, it's not a condition of salvation, it was certainly an issue of great importance, an issue that would work toward maintaining harmony in the capital C church, not even just that local body of believers, but all of those that make up God's church, maintaining harmony there. Again, not a salvation decree, but instead practical instructions to these Gentile believers to not act in such a way that would unnecessarily offend the Jewish believers in every city that the gospel would go forth. And so while it's true that you don't need to become a Jew in order to become a Christian, it's also true that you don't have to stop being a Jew in order to become a Christian. And that's what James is trying to get at. That's the reason for the instructions that he has given is to protect against unnecessary divide between these two cultures. Now let's look a little bit more closely at the instructions that he gives. He presents to them four instructions. All right, and three of them, well, all of them involve the word abstain. He says, abstain from things polluted by idols, abstain from sexual immorality, abstain, abstain from what has been strangled, and abstain from blood. And that, again, that's food, that's meat that still has the blood within it. Now, three of those things, three of those four things that they're told to abstain from, they concern dietary matters, which would have certainly had an impact on the interactions at the potluck suppers uh, that they were going to have in that particular church. And so while Gentile Christians, while they had the right to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols or food that was not prepared according to kosher rules and things of that nature, what they were being encouraged to do here was lay down those rights as a display of love for their brothers and sisters. I'm not laying down my rights for anybody else. That's not a Christian thing. That sounds really like goofy. That's not very Christian. In this case, it's not, <laughs> all right? If you say, I'm not laying down my rights for anyone else, that's not the message of the scriptures. And so here, James is telling them, yeah, you have the right. You could eat the food that was offered to idols. You know that idols are just demonic things, Paul would say. Uh, no big deal. It doesn't really even make sense. They're nothing. He says, go ahead and eat that if you want to eat that. But in the context of what kind of offense that might have against the Jews, he says, no, don't do it. Paul's going to write this later. This is in the book of 1 Corinthians. He's, he's Will read earlier a little bit from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Chapters 8 through chapter 10 Paul's going to address this issue uh, with Gentile believers and so on. I, I just want to give you a portion of it. This is from chapter 8. It's verses 8 through 12. And this is what Paul wrote. He said this, Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do eat. He says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone... For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food that is offered to idols? And so then by your knowledge, 
this weak person is destroyed. This brother whom the Lord died for. Verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you now sin against Christ. And Paul would wrap up that little uh, section there and he would say this, verse 13. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. You see that there? And so Paul, in that case, his point, James in that case is, I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about loving your brother, your sister. And so in a sense, the Apostle Paul is under the law, but not under the law of Moses, under the law of love. And that's what James is appealing to, the law of love, causing again Paul to say, look, if food makes my brother stumble, then I'll never eat that food again, lest I make my brother stumble. That's what James is getting at. Now, a moment ago, I I pointed out that three of the four laws, rules that James communicated had to do with dietary restrictions. All of those are found in Leviticus chapter 17 and 18. Whose favorite book of the Bible is Leviticus? All right, that guy, that weird one over there, I had a feeling. All right, the fourth thing that James calls upon these Gentile believers to abstain from is sexual morality. We see that there in verse 20, but you should write to them, abstain, skip down a little, from sexual immorality. Now, when James declares that these Gentile Christians were to abstain from sexual morality, we're we're not to take that to think that that was something that the Jews really had to pay attention to, the Gentiles didn't, but because the Jews do, you should as well. We're not just talking about sexual morality in and of itself or sex outside of marriage which all Christians, Jews and Gentiles, recognized as wrong then and continue to recognize according to the scripture today. Specifically, what James is referring to is for them, these Gentiles, to observe the specific marriage regulations required by Leviticus 18. If you go back there, you dig in, you look, you'll notice that it prohibits close relations being married and other things Um, like that. And there's probably seven or eight different instructions that are given there. But it has to do with marriage regulations that are presented. The Gentiles married close one another relations and things like that. They had no difficulties and no problems with those particular things. The Jews did. And that would be a serious uh, issue of divide, uh, divide between these two groups and highly offensive to the Jewish brethren. And so James here, he's not just talking about general sexual immorality. He's talking specifically about this thing which would cause a divide between the Jews and the Gentiles. And he tells them to abstain from sexual immorality. And so then with that, remember James has stood up. He's made this statement about these four particular things. The the conference, the council is essentially over. Their deliberations have been completed. All they need to do now is kind of put it down on paper and send it back to Antioch. And so we see in verse 22, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas and a letter. And they sent Judas, who was also called Barsabas, and they sent Silas, two men, leading men among the brothers with the following letter, which we'll be looking at. And before we look at, notice the wisdom that this council uses. So there was a great divide, uh, no small dissension 
Paul and Barnabas on one side, the men of Judah on the other. Paul and Barnabas say, well, we're going to go back down to Jerusalem. We'll figure out what's going on. And then Paul and Barnabas come back, and they basically say what they had been saying before. Does anyone potentially doubt Paul and Barnabas there? Nobody? Wait a minute. How do I know that's really what they said? Something to that effect. And so in wisdom, they say, you know what, we're going to send with you as well uh, this guy Barsabas and Silas. And they will essentially become the official emissaries of the church there in Jerusalem. They will come and they will essentially present the findings of that church, uh, the church leadership there in Jerusalem. Barsabas and Silas are going to serve in that role. So here's the letter. It starts in verse 23. It says, Now the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and in Syria and in Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions to do so, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas, that's Barsabas, and Silas, who themselves would tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Verse 29, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, that you abstain from blood, that you abstain from what has been strangled, and that you abstain from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Simple little letter. Kind of puts it out there, lays it for them. Notice who it's addressed to. It says, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, that's uh, Syrian Antioch, and Syria and Cilicia. So the letter, now Paul and Barnabas, Remember, they were in Lystra, they were in Lyconia, they were in Derby, they were in a whole bunch of other cities. But this letter is written particularly to those that are in the city of Antioch and to the region of Syria and to the region of Cilicia. Those churches or those little towns, those little communities, happen to be made up of a good number of Jews. If you go back and you look at Acts in chapter 13 and 14, you see that when Paul and Barnabas went into those towns, they went into the synagogues first. And when typically the synagogue didn't respond, rejected their message, they then went just into the general community. But when you look at Derby, when you look at Lystra, when you look at Lyconia, they don't go into synagogues. Why? Probably because there were no synagogues there. There wasn't much of a Jewish presence in those Gentile communities. And so this letter isn't written to all Gentiles everywhere. It's specifically written to those Gentiles that live in a, in a community made up with a Jewish population as well, where there's going to be the potential for divide over these kinds of issues. You see that there? I think that's pretty cool. I, I liked it, and I thought you might like it. Apparently not. All right, so anyhow, it was fun for me to consider it. Now, I think you can divide the contents of the letter into three parts. Verse 24, it's a general statement about kind of what went down, how this whole council thing came up. He said, look, we heard some persons have gone out from us, troubled you with words that unsettled you, even though we gave them no instructions to say those things. All right, so that's why the council took place. That, if you look at verses 25 to 27, that's followed by the council's decision 
to not only send Paul and Barnabas back, but also to send Silas and this fellow Judas back as well with the results of the liberation. So it says it seemed good to us having come to an agreement, having come to one accord, to send those four men back to you who themselves will say the same things uh, by the word of their mouths. All right, so they explain how they sent these guys back with the official word of the council. And then finally, if you look down in verse 28 and 29, beginning there, they give the results of the council's meeting. It seemed good to us, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, it says, and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And we've read them many times, what they were. Notice that, that point there. It seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. Just a mark of humility on the part of these leaders. Look, we seek the Lord. We try to understand what the Lord is doing. There are instances, certainly in the scripture, where the Lord kind of thunders from heaven and makes his will very, very clear. But many times we, we have a sense of what the Lord is doing. We have a sense of what the Lord is leading. It seems right to us. It seemed as if this was the Holy Spirit's leading. And so they communicate this measure of humility, even in this statement here, even though they're the apostles. We have decided, they could have said, but they don't say that. And in humility, they said, look, this is how we feel the Lord is leading us. And they present that. And I love the way they wrap it up. Farewell. Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, read it to the congregation, the congregation rejoiced. Oh, thank God. I don't have to get circumcised. The men rejoiced a lot more than the ladies in this congregation. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, they encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time there, they were sent off uh, in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. Verse 35 says, But Paul and Barnabas, they remained there in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, and many others also, which we have seen. Paul and Barnabas weren't the only teachers there at that church in Antioch. It's a good thing. They went away for three years. But there were a number of others that taught as well. And that, that's referenced once more there uh, in verse 35. But again, how relieved... This congregation made up primarily of Gentiles in that community. How relieved they must have been to see that the principle of salvation by grace and grace alone was preserved by this council. Now, we were like, of course the council is going to decide that. That's how we could look at it, but not necessarily them. And so they're waiting there. When are they going to be back? When are they going to tell us? And it says there, when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. There had been an official declaration that a person and that they themselves were saved and right with God, after all, despite any doubts that might have risen amongst them because of what these uh, men of Judah had come and taught. I remember when I was in college, uh, a group of us, we went to a, a mission conference out in Illinois or somewhere we went. And as we went into the conference, um, you know, 15,000 Christian college kids mostly, as we went into this particular conference, outside of the conference, outside of the doors, were all of these folks holding their signs and all of this, and they were a Christian group, and with their signs, and hey, can we talk to you, and all of this stuff, they were essentially communicating to us 
that if you have not been baptized, you are not saved. And I had been baptized as a baby, but not as an adult. I was about 18, 19 years old, not as an adult. I hadn't been baptized at that particular point in time. Oh my gosh, you're not saved. You're at risk. If you die today, I said, but I believe in Jesus. I receive Christ and the grace of God. What about not by works, lest any man should boast? No, nope, got to be baptized, buddy. And that, that stayed with me for a bit. And I wrestled, and I was like, these people are wrong. And then I got all like, I knew I should get baptized, not to go to heaven, but to be obedient. But then I was like, I'm not getting baptized for nobody because I'm a jerk, you know, and I got a bad attitude. And so I put it off for like five years, and I'm just going to show them. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to go tap that guy in the shoulder. You remember me? Yeah, I'm the guy who said I wasn't going to be here or whatever. And then finally, the Lord's like, you're goofy. Just go get baptized. And so my lovely bride and I, we went to the YMCA, very spiritual. And uh, one of the pastors baptized us in the YMCA. But the relief, imagine if you were really worried, am I saved or am I not saved? And to have people come back and say, look, it's not by anything that you can do. It's by the work that Jesus Christ has done. And so this council, nothing is, they determine this, nothing is necessary to salvation other than faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to address just one thing that came to mind as we were closing out last time. And I thought about bringing it up then, but we were pushing the edge of the tomatoes flying, you know, like, get off the stage, you know, that kind of thing. And so we'll come back to it this week. And so it came to mind last week as I was closing out our time together, what I couldn't help but think to myself is that surely there must be something more that needs to occur than a person merely saying, well, I believe Jesus. I believe Jesus. And I'm thinking, well, yes, I believe that, but do I really believe that? And is that really true? That is just simply like, um, yep, I believe, put me down. I believe Jesus. Now, so first and foremost, I'll say this. There is nothing more that needs to be done and can be done but believe. Paul, you may recall, we're going to see it in a chapter or two from now, he's interacting with a Philippian jailer. Paul's in jail. Uh, some things go down, and this Philippian's like, wow, you know, what must I do? You're ama- you know, what you, the, what your testimony that you just shared is amazing. What must I do? And we read this, verse 30, Then he brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, chapter 16, verse 31, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. All right, so that answers the question, right? Nothing else needs to be added but believing in the Lord Jesus. Now, here's my question. I believe in the Lord Jesus, you betcha. And then I'm out doing this, and I'm out doing that, and I'm running around over here, and there has been no change in my life whatsoever. And I'm continuing to live the life that I'd always lived before. Does that person truly believe? What does it mean to believe upon the Lord Jesus? Does it mean to believe? Yeah, I believe that 2,000 years ago there was a guy named Jesus. I believe he did some great things. He said some nice things. And, and I'm told he even died on the cross. I believe that as well. Is that what it means to believe upon the Lord Jesus? Well, I'll say this. It certainly begins there. In the biblical sense, it begins with that, but it's much greater than that. I'll give you an example of what I'm referring to. There's a similar situation in the book of James. James chapter 2, verse 19, James says this, You believe that God is one. Some versions say you believe that there is a God, or that there is God, capital G. He says you do well. 
And then he reminds them, but not so well, because even the demons believe that. Now, would we all agree that the demons are not in right relationship with God? And yet they believe in God. And so it's important to believe in God, certainly. But that in and of itself isn't enough because the demons are not in a right place with the Lord. The type of faith, James will go on now to say, the type of faith, the type of belief that saves a person is the type of faith in which a person's life is built on that belief. So James will go on to say in chapter 2, he'll say, I will show you my faith by my works. Let me give you a scenario, an example. Imagine you've come across an old rickety bridge. I'm thinking of a bridge that we came across in Nepal. And in Nepal, lots of mountains and all this kind of stuff. And you're, op- you're over this like 100-foot drop. And you come to this bridge and you're kind of looking at it and you're looking at your belly and you know, all the cookies you've been eating. You're thinking, I'm not sure about this. And you, you come across this old rickety bridge that crosses sort of this deep ravine. Well, it costs none of us anything to say, yeah, I'm sure that bridge will hold me as we stay on this side of the bridge. Anybody can say that. Anybody can say, I believe that this bridge will hold me. But the person that truly demonstrates that the bridge will hold them actually steps out upon it and begins to go across it. That's James' point when he says, I will show you my faith by my works. And so while salvation is entirely dependent upon our faith, it's important to stress what true faith is actually what true faith actually is. I'll give you some verses. Jesus said this. He said if you will love if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John chapter 14 verse 15. In another place Jesus said this. He said you will know those that are mine by their fruits. He says, do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad bad fruit. Paul the apostle wrote these words. He says, the Lord knows those who are his. And then he goes on from there and he says, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Another place, Paul said this, and they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And so clearly something has to happen inside of the person and a work has to begin to manifest itself in that particular person's life. They're not saved because of their works, but because they're saved, it will be demonstrated by their works. The Apostle John, he wrote this, He said, these that that named the name of Christ, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And so again, my point in just hitting those six or seven verses here is to balance this idea of, you know, writing the correct answer on a test. And it's to balance the idea with this, that we are not saved by our works, but if we are saved, it will be evidenced by our works. And so for us that are here, those that are watching online, look, if you believe in Jesus, quote unquote, yet there's no, been no change in who you are and in how you live, my recommendation to you is to search and consider, have you really believed in Jesus? 
Have you stepped out onto that old rickety bridge? Have you placed your faith in him and stepped out in that faith that you might walk with him? And so just something that kind of came to mind as I was closing out our time together, what it means to believe in Jesus. Let's continue on verse 32. It says, Now Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, they encouraged and they strengthened the brothers with many words. These guys, they're teachers as well. And they, they got up in front of the congregation there and they encouraged this younger congregation, five years or so in the faith. And they taught them. What's pretty cool to take notice, Judas and Silas were Jews. Remember, this whole chapter began with this potential divide between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, and here there is a harmony in their relationship. Judas here, this other fellow here, um, Silas, they spend some time with them, they teach them, they fellowship with them, they help them to grow in the faith. And again, in light of that potential, huge potential divide, that was lingering in the beginning of the chapter, the unity that this body of believers is enjoying is quite remarkable. Verse 33 says, and after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace. They weren't run out, you know. They laid hands on them, they prayed for them, they encouraged them, gave them a to-go bag of food. And they sent them off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. Now, some of our versions here have verse 34. Some of you may not have even noticed if you look that in some of our versions, 33 skips right to verse 35. Anybody's Bible do that? Uh, a bunch of our Bibles do. There are some manuscripts, King James Version, New King James Version, the Authorized Standard Version. They in verse 34 as part of this power, they, not in verse, um, insert verse 34 as part of this paragraph. Other texts, the English Standard Version, which is what I'm using, NIV, which a lot of people use, they don't include it as part of the paragraph, and you almost certainly have a little note in the margin, maybe at the bottom of your Bibles there, about this verse. And so there is some discrepancy amongst the manuscripts. I think it's important for us to look at it. I don't think this needs to rock any of our faith. Oh my God, how can I trust the Bible? Your Bible has verse 34 and yours doesn't. Well, first off, what verse 34 says is this, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there. That is certainly not a doctrinally life-changing verse one way or the other. And I'd rather the publishers of each of our versions of the Bible be honest with us than to hide something less, oh boy, I don't know if I can trust it anymore. And so that's what they're being honest with. The NIV, the ESV, they come from different manuscript bases than do the King James, the New King James, and others. And in these particular manuscripts, the verse isn't there. In these particular manuscripts, it is. And that's why it's included in some and not included in the others. But the context of it, simply, whether it's in your margin or it's in your paragraph, it says this, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there. And so one way or the other, we're going to see it down in verse 40, Silas connects back up with the Apostle Paul. And so whether he went back down to Jerusalem or up to Jerusalem and came back to Antioch or he remained there and only Barsabas and whoever other was traveling with them went down to Jerusalem. One way or another, Paul and Silas, they jump back up. And we'll see that in verse 40 when we get there. But before, look at verse 35. It says, now Paul and Barnabas, they remained in Antioch and there they taught and they preached the word of the Lord with many others also. A happy ending. Oh, thank God. 
just a nice, happy ending where the unity of the Spirit is being experienced by that congregation of believers. So far, so good, right? This is great. Happy feeling until we get to the next verse. Let's look at verse 36 and the final paragraph. I think this is helpful. We have problems sometimes with others, discrepancies and conflict with others. We see it here as well. It says in verse 36, Now after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord to see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, who was called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and he departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And they, he, went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening those churches. This is unfortunate, isn't it? A significant enough fight where they break up the team. That troublesome, I think. Anybody with me? Because you would think, I'm sure everybody can work everything out, can't they? How come Paul and Barnabas aren't working this particular thing out? Well, let's take a look at it here and see a little bit what is going on. So verse 35 says, Paul and Barnabas, they're there to their teaching. It says, now after some days, it, it's approximately about a year or so that they remained. So they had been gone for three years. They're back for about a year. They're teaching. They're helping strengthen that church there in Antioch. And then Paul says to Barnabas, hey, you know what? We should go, we should trace the steps of our former journey, the, the previous journey that we took. See how the brothers are doing there. Talk to them, encourage them, strengthen them, answer any questions they might have. Make sure that they're growing as disciples. That was Paul's heart. Paul certainly had the heart of a pioneer evangelist. I'll go anywhere where the gospel hasn't been presented. I don't want to build on somebody else's uh, edifice that they've already started. I want to go where nobody has ever heard, and I want to bring the gospel there. Paul had that heart of a pioneer evangelist. He also had the heart of a discipler. You remember when the first missionary journey was coming to a close, rather than just kind of, you know, straight lining at home, Paul says, you know, instead of just going right home, it's going to be about 300 miles or so, why don't we take the long way home and hit every one of the churches? That's how he ended that three-year trip. Now, a year later, he says here, you know what, let's go back and see how they're all doing. Let's encourage them once more in the faith. His words are, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas says, sounds great. Who should we bring with us? Who can we bring, you know, to kind of mentor and guide and can also be a helper to us while we go? Barnabas says, I have someone in mind. Why don't we bring my nephew, Mark? And you see that there in verse 37, wanted to bring with them John who was called Mark. And you might recall, uh, Barnabas and Mark, uh, they were relatives of one another, his sister's son, uh, and they had, he had pushed to bring him on that first missionary journey as an opportunity for Mark to grow in the faith, to observe, to see some things, and also to be an assistance and a helper. But you may remember, it was back in Acts chapter 13, 
as they came from the island of Cyprus and they went on to the mainland of what is commonly called Asia Minor, that they hung down in that coastland. And that's where it seems that they, that at least Paul, they all got sick with malaria. And then they said, look, we got to get out of this coastland here. We're all going to die. And so they wanted to go inland and they had to basically climb a rock wall of sorts. They had to rock climb to get to the top here. It was a very difficult road. The winding paths that they did have, a lot of crime and things like that. And it was at that point, we don't know exactly why, but you put some of the pieces of the puzzle together, you begin to get the picture. It was at that point that Mark, the word that is used in Acts 13, abandoned them. He took off. And now Paul and Barnabas, Paul, who seems to be sick with malaria, is forced to carry the bags that they had brought Mark along to do. And he could have really used Mark to go into places to get food and all that kind of stuff that Mark was there to do. It says in Acts 13 that Mark abandoned them. So here we are now, four years later, and Barnabas says, I have just the guy we should bring, Mark. Paul's response, it's not in the original here, it's in my head. Are you nuts? I'm not bringing that kid. I'm not bringing the guy that abandoned us. I don't think it's a good idea. Paul said this. Paul thought best, this is what Luke described it as, not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and who had not gone with them in the work. Now, who's right here and who's wrong? Now, Barnabas, I don't know what's going on in his mind, but I'm suspecting Barnabas, who's called the son of encouragement in other places, Barnabas sees this as an opportunity to restore Mark, to encourage Mark. Yeah, you blew it. We all blow it. You know what? You dust yourself off, you get back up, and you start going again. Perhaps Barnabas has that verse in mind that John would later go on to write. If we confess our sins, God is faithful. God's just. And he'll cleanse you from that unrighteousness. Mark, go before the Lord and I imagine Mark already had, confessed his sins, and Barnabas said, you know what, let's get you back up on the horse. Let's get going again. Well, that's going on in Barnabas's mind. That make a lot of sense? So Barnabas is right, correct? Now, Paul, coming from it from a different perspective, perhaps he is thinking something more along the lines of what Jesus said, that no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, that's what Jesus said, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Look, this isn't a playtime. We're going to reach souls for eternity. And I need someone that I can count on. And you're abandoning us, and you did abandon us exactly when I needed you. There's plenty of other young people I can reach out to to bring along with me. I don't think I can trust you. Because anyone who looks back after putting his hand to the plow is not fit for the work of the kingdom of God, or for the kingdom of God. Again, does that seem reasonable? So Paul's right, correct? It's like that proverb. You know, when this guy comes in and presents his case, he's right. When that guy comes in and presents his case, no, no, he's right. And that's the scenario here that seems to be going on. And you have these two godly men, which seem to have theological reasons for their particular viewpoints, and it causes... As it says in verse uh, 39 there, it causes a sharp disagreement between them. Again, second time in this chapter, there was the 
the great divide or dissension, that no small dissension that took place in verse 2. And here now we have this sharp disagreement. And it was such a disagreement that one couldn't convince the other. And so as it says there in verse 9, and so they separated from one another. And so the ministry efforts of the team, Paul and Barnabas, comes to an end. Now their ministry efforts as individuals doesn't stop. As we're going to go on to see, Barnabas is going to go one direction, and he's going to take Mark with them. As it says there at the end of verse 39, they go to the island of Cyprus. And remember, that island there that Paul and Barnabas four years earlier had kind of moved their way from village to village, from one side of the island to the other side of the island. And so Barnabas and Mark, they go back to the island of Cyprus, and Barnabas and Mark, they connect with those that they had encountered previously, and they minister to them and encourage them and do all the things that Paul had suggested a few verses earlier. But then look at verse 40. It says, but Paul chose Silas, and he departed, having been commended by the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, and he went up to that area there of Asia Minor. And so again, you look at this, and you say, well, who's right? Is Paul right? And the perspective he comes from, look, I need people that are committed. Is Barnabas right? Look, people are going to make mistakes, and we've got to brush them off and get them back on the horse. Again, they both seem to have scriptural justifications. And I, I might suggest I think both of them are a little bit at fault in this interaction amongst them. And as I look at this, I think the divide is unfortunate. I wish, you know, we could look at it and, and sort of have this picture that, you know, you hit a certain level of spiritual maturity, you're not going to have any problems with anybody ever again, and life is going to be smooth. I wish that's what it said, because then it would be something I could kind of like, okay, good, I hope my wife and I, we get there, you know, at some point in time, you know. But the reality is it reveals the reality of what it means to walk as a Christian. You know, sometimes there are going to be issues that we come at from a different perspective and we think we have our biblical justification for it and we have to figure out a way to work those particular things out and it may actually come to a conclusion where like you know what we're going to disagree on this and i'm going to go this particular direction and you're going to go that particular direction here's the thing the the positive takeaway for it even though there's this divide and we wish the divide didn't occur here now we see twice as much work is being done. And so Barnabas and Mark are going in their direction and they're doing what they want to do. And simultaneously, Paul and Silas are doing the work of the Lord in this particular area. And so even in this, twice as much work is being done. The Lord is bringing some level of good, even from what I would describe this as an unfortunate interaction amongst these two men. I'll close with this last thought. I see you're reaching into your bag for your tomatoes. Uh, so I will close with this last thought. Um, years after this split, and again, what person caused the split? Like, it was all about Mark, correct? Years after this split, it's about 10 years after this split between Paul and Barnabas over this young fellow Mark, here's how Paul describes Mark. It's found in the book of Philemon. There's a long listing. It's right at the conclusion of the, of the book. It says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, 
or so does Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. And then notice what he calls that whole group of people, including Mark. He says, my fellow workers. So 10 years later, as Paul is writing this letter to this fellow Philemon, he mentions the fact that he's with Mark. Mark says hi, and he describes Mark as his fellow worker. So somewhere in between, those two have made up, so to speak, with one another. We also see this in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 4 was written about 15 years after this event that we have here in the book of Acts. And there, Paul says this. He says, Luke alone is with me. And he says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. They've been restored. I got tingles. I don't know if you do. But how sweet. They've been restored. And maybe there was a reason why God really impressed upon Paul's heart in the Acts passage that Mark shouldn't be coming with you on this particular trip. But nonetheless, there should still be a um, restoration of the, the relationship. And so we see here God restored Mark, and we see that God softened the heart of Paul toward Mark. And again, I just think it's sweet, and I think it's wonderful to see how God can do that work within us. And I imagine a lot of us have people in our lives where that kind of a work needs to be done. And so be encouraged when you see that it is done here in Paul's life with this fellow Mark. Amen? Let's close out our time. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We almost forget the portion about the Jerusalem Council as we come to a close. Lord, but we thank you for the, uh, the unmitigated statement that we are saved by the work of Christ on the cross and the work of Christ in and of itself. Nothing that we could add, no works of our own, lest any of us should begin to boast of our own righteousness. And Father, we pray for anyone here. Lord, perhaps there's some that are with us, even watching with us, that don't truly have an understanding of what it means to come into right relationship with God through the work of Jesus Christ. And certainly they believe the right information and they can pass a test somewhere, but yet you've not won over their hearts, nor have they given over their hearts to you. Father, would you do a drawing work within them? Would you reveal that even in the, the present circumstance that they are still in the place of great need? And would you save their soul even today? And Father, as we uh, closed out our time looking at Paul and Barnabas and this argument that they got into, Lord, we pray for your wisdom and your heart. We pray that we would be people that can walk in humility as we face similar circumstances. We pray that we would uh, have the ability to allow you to soften our hearts toward others that may have hurt us. That we might be able to extend, Lord, the the hand of fellowship once more to them for having forgiven them. And Lord, that uh, you'd bless us in those endeavors. How sweet it is to be able to carry no weights. So do that, we ask in Jesus' name.